0: So our sermon today will be taken from the, book of, from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And thus says the Lord.
1: Thanks, Al. Uh, thank you, Chipta, for those announcements. Uh, again, just to reiterate, the Mercy Ministry uh, uh, team will be going to Pantiaswan Karmakasi on Saturday. And if you want to join that, it'll be will be there from 11:30 to one. Um, if you want to join that or know more about it, please go to Emily um, or myself. Emily over there, or myself, uh, give her your information and we'll contact you and tell you more about what we're doing. And regroup, as Chipta also mentioned, um, is a time um, where a group of guys and a group of girls will um, uh, spend a weekly two-hour uh, uh, sessions together and they'll talk about and explore their life story. And the purpose of that is we believe that oftentimes we use Bible verses a little too flippantly. Uh, if somebody has a problem, we just throw them five verses and think that it's solved. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a more effective way to apply biblical truth in our lives, and that is by looking at um, our stories. Some of the wounds we've gone through, some of the uh, joys we've had, and, um, and I think that'll uh, give, uh, give us a window to apply those truths in deeper areas of our lives. So that, that's kind of the purpose of, of the group. Um, so if you want to join that or be part of that, uh, again, go to Emily or myself um, t- and tell me uh, of your interest. We're gonna start that in two weeks. Uh, so, so this will be the last week from here to next Friday of, of letting us know if you want to join that, all right? Okay, so today we're going to continue uh, in our sermon through the book of John. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you probably know we've been going through this uh, series uh, through John. And just a reminder of, of what happened before our passage today, before Jesus interacted with Nicodemus, um, the passage before this is Jesus in the temple and Jesus was confronted with Jewish religious leaders of the time because he was sharing the gospel, pretty much, in the temple. If you remember, these Jewish leaders got upset. They confronted Jesus, and they questioned him on whose authority do you do these things with? Who are you? And they hoped that by confronting Jesus, Jesus would stop, but he didn't. In verses 23 to 25 in chapter 2, you see Jesus continuing doing his ministry. So now, after a public confrontation didn't work, the Jewish religious leaders tried a more direct approach by sending a man named Nicodemus. Verse 1 says, Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. My hope today as we study Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus that it will be helpful not only to Christians but also to those here that might still be exploring Christianity. I believe the passage is relevant to both. For Christians, it can remind us of the gospel, of the love that God has for you, um, and also give us a biblical paradigm of how to interact and engage with those who might still be exploring Christianity or the gospel. And it's also beneficial, I think, for those still exploring the gospel and Christianity because I think this passage specifically addresses an issue about Christianity that could also maybe be an area of hindrance for many people. And that is the question of how Christians can believe all this stuff about salvation, all this stuff about gospel, all this stuff about uh, what Jesus just said about the spirit. When How can we believe in these things when there is no obvious, immediate, and empirical proof to it? We'll, we'll talk about that more later, but I, I do believe this passage addresses both. Um, so let's, let's pray, and then we'll begin our sermon. Father, we come to you and we beg you uh, once again that as we study your scriptures, uh, we're dependent on you. And as Jesus, you just said in, in your in your words to Nicodemus, that unless the spirit works, uh, it won't be effective. And we, we beg you and we um, ask you that your spirit would work no matter how well things are presented. Um, the words of sinful man cannot change hearts. So we beg you that your spirit would, if it is your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Three things I want to point out from our passage today. One is the gospel is a transformation given to us. Two, the gospel is a reality uncontrollable by us. And three, the gospel is a power that compels us. The gospel is a transformation given to us. It is a reality uncontrollable by us. And it is a power that compels us. All right, let's start with that first point. The gospel is a transformation given to us. So we begin in our story and the setting of the scene, and we see in verse 2 that it's nighttime. By the way, in the Gospel of John, in the book of John, every time the scene is night, it's always some sort of conflict or confrontation. And here we see a man named Nicodemus in verses 1 to 2 confronting Jesus at night. We We see two things about this man. One is that he's a Pharisee. And two, he's a ruler of the Jews. That's what verse one says. A Pharisee is a part of the Jewish religious authorities who believe that you can be saved by being a good person. You can be saved by being more religious. You can be saved by obeying God. That's the way you're saved. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But he's also a ruler of the Jews. Um, A senior theologian, scholar, and historian from Cambridge University named Richard Bacham, said with many other historians and confirms that the name Nicodemus, although popular in that general region, for a specific uh, 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 Palestinian Judaism in that region and that time of history, the name Nicodemus uh, solely belonged to a Jewish family named the Gurian family. The Gurian family named their kids Nicodemus. I think there's four of them named Nicodemus. And the Gurion family was a religiously, financially, And socially, very, very, very established family at the time. Even the name Nicodemus means conqueror of the people. So this is an intimidating man. He came to Jesus. The setting is at night. And I think, I believe, and I think it's true that it's because previously when the Jewish authorities failed to stop Jesus in the temple, they sent perhaps Nicodemus, a more intimidating representation of their party. So this intimidating figure, Nicodemus, approaches Jesus that night, says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Now this is not a genuine praise. This is more of a sarcastic jab. Rabbi, which means teacher, you must be so spiritual. Doing all these things, you must be from God. It's kind of making, making fun of Jesus. It's actually a common way to start a verbal argument at the time. I guess today, and, or back then in France, you would have a handkerchief and slap the person. That's kind of how you start an argument. Back then, you, you come to somebody and you say something sarcastic like that. He's kind of baiting Jesus for a response. And Jesus responded pretty straightforward. He went to the point. Now, he doesn't always respond to people in such a, a blunt manner. Um, in other times, he's more curious. He's more kind. He's more sensitive. Um, and he, he leads with questions. But... I guess different people need different approaches. So Jesus answered him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We'll dig deep into that later, but for now, let's just take a look at at the whole dialogue. Truly, truly, so Nicodemus comes, confronts Jesus, and Jesus says, truly, truly, um, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused. He responded in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus further explains in verses 5 to 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Here we see Jesus giving amazing insight into what the gospel is. A lot of us might know what the Bible says about the gospel. If, if somebody asked you, what does the Bible say about the gospel, you'd probably say it, it's the good news that God became flesh uh, and he died for our sins, so that now sinful people like us can be counted as innocent and righteous through his sacrifice, and now we can have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's correct, and that, that is the good news of the gospel. But that's not all. The gospel is actually much brighter and much deeper than that. Paul says, I, I want you to understand how high and how deep and how long and how, uh, how big the love of Christ is. And, and I think this passage gives us an insight to what Paul meant there. Jesus here is explaining to Nicodemus, explaining to us, the good news of the gospel is not only that the mercy of God that died in our place on the cross, but the mercy of God in that the only reason of why we're able to receive the gospel is because he made us able to. The mercy of God is not only found in the fact that he died first on the cross, but the mercy of God is found in the fact that we're able to receive that in the first place is because his spirit made us able to. Now, there's a lot of people here, and every single person here might have a different opinion of, of, of why people accept the gospel or why people reject the gospel. Why is that? Why, why are some people like Nicodemus antagonistic towards the gospel? Why is it that some other people don't want to have anything to do with it? They're kind of nonchalant about it. They don't care much about it. But yet some other people embrace it, and they're truly changed by it. And some of us might say, well, it's because some people receive the gospel and some people don't because it's, it's, it's about upbringing. If you've been brought up in a Christian family, then you're more likely to receive the gospel. If you're not brought up in a Christian family, then you're probably not going to receive the gospel, okay? Some people might say that the difference is education. People who are less educated um, are more prone to all this spiritual, mystical stuff. They just don't know much about, you know, how the world works yet. So less education means you're prone to accepting the gospel. Or some people might say, if you're more educated, that's why you receive the gospel. Or you might say the gospel is more appealing to desperate people, people that need kind of a sense of purpose in life. They just have purpose, so, so they need something like that. Or people that need a community, because of that, they receive the gospel. Or some might say it's because some people are just more religious, more moral. Whatever your theory is, whatever your reasoning of why people accept and don't accept the gospel, um, um, let's see what Jesus' explanation is. Let's see what his reasoning is. Verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the reason why some people embrace the gospel and some people don't is not primarily because of educational background or cultural upbringing or a sense of morality, but it's because some people are born again and some people aren't. Now, what in the world does that mean and why does it sound so prideful when I say it? Let's let's look into it a little bit more. Jesus explains in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit. Notice verse 3 and verse 5 is almost identical, except for one word, the word again. The word again in verse 3 was changed to the words water and spirit in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, verse 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit. See, the key word of understanding what Jesus meant by being born again is to study what it means by water and spirit. Okay, let, let's, let's get into it a little bit so we can continue in the passage. The word ag- again, the Greek word again in verse 3, literally means anew, born anew. Anofen, that, that's the Greek word for it, anofen or anew. The word anofen or the word anew in verse 3, the word again in verse 3, is changed and replaced by the words water and spirit in verse 5. There's three images here. A new, new creation, water, and spirit. Now, can you think of another passage in the Bible where these three images are mentioned in one text? Genesis 1. What did God do in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? God created a new, new creation, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we're not forcing the connection here. Throughout the book of John in chapter 1, he's always referred back to Genesis chapter 1. You remember? He even starts with, uh, if you read John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. That's an echo of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was the light of the world. The light entered the world, but the darkness rejected the light. In the beginning, Genesis 1, the beginning God created the, word, uh, the world um, uh, and, and, and there's a void, there's a darkness and God said, let there be light. He's always made connections and there's even more connections if you read all of chapter 1. So this, we're not forcing it. John's just going back again, making the connection. To be created anew, to be born again means that there is literally a new creation that happens in somebody that is the same as the new creation that happened in Genesis 1. It's, it's, it's new. Born again. You're a new creature, Paul says. Jesus is saying here, the difference of why some receive and embrace the gospel and some don't, it's not because of education. It's not because of cultural background. But literally, some have been created anew, just like the Spirit of God hovered over the water in Genesis and created a new creation. But how are we a new creation after we accept Christ? If we were short before we were Christian, we're still short after we receive Christ. Um, if we're right-handed before we're a Christian and then we receive Christ, we're still right-handed after we receive Christ. Or if you hate vegetables before you're Christian, you probably still hate vegetables after you receive Christ. So what, what does it mean to be new, created anew? Two things, water and spirit? One, you've been cleansed from your sin, as presented with the image of water, water meant for cleansing. We bear our sin no more. Because Christ has taken all of it on the cross, not partially, fully, from end to end. But two, you also have a new spirit in you, it says. And we'll talk about other verses that talk about that. The spirit of Christ, so not only is your legal status, your legal debt before God forgiven and taken away, you literally have a spirit of God in you. This is the spirit Jesus was talking about. A new heart that now embraces the gospel instead of reject it and live it out. To some, Paul says, the gospel is an aroma from death to death, but to others it's an aroma from life to life. These, by the way, these motifs of a new creation of water and spirit appears in another Old Testament text. I think it's important. We need to talk about it. And by the way, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, so he was very familiar with the Old Testament. And Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew what Jesus was talking about. Okay, so another text, not only Genesis 1, but uh, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27, about being created new water and spirit. Let's read it. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is God making a promise to his people in the Old Testament. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see the themes here again? Water created a new spirit in you. This is why Jesus says some receive the gospel and some don't. Unless this happens to you, unless you're born again, you will not be able to embrace this gospel message. We will be antagonistic towards it, or at the best, apathetic to it. And the reason Jesus is saying all this to Nicodemus is, is, is actually very loving. We'll, we'll get that to the end. It's very loving. It, it's telling Nicodemus, the reason, Nico, that you're verbally attacking me right now, that you're mocking me right now, that you're antagonistic to the gospel right now, It's not because you're educated. It's not because you come from a rich family. It's not because you're religious or you have your own religious bent. It's because your heart has not been made anew by the Spirit. And it's not a prideful thing to say. It's actually very humble thing to say. What a good reminder it is to Christians today who are in Christ, if you're here today and you've received the gospel, the only reason why you've received the gospel is not because you're more educated. It's not because the person who shared it with you did a perfect job in sharing the gospel. It's not because you are more religious or you're more moral than other people. No. The reason why we receive the gospel is because God the Father planned it and promised it to you from long ago as Jesus refers back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36. And because the Son accomplished it for you on the cross, As we'll see Jesus explaining in verses 14 to 15 later. And because the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart and made it anew, as we see Jesus saying in verses 4 to 5. We are no better. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not just the Son died for us, but that it's been planned by the Father from long ago, and our hearts were renewed by the Spirit in such a way that we're able to receive it. It's grace from beginning to end leaving absolutely zero room to boast. Our education, the person who shared it with you, our cultural backgrounds, our religiosity, our morality, our community, our good conscience and humility, even our own church can take zero credit for our salvation. None. It is the grace and mercy of God alone. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is a transformation given to us, Jesus says, solely because of the mercy of the triune God. Now, Jesus' answer might be frustrating to some people. I know it was frustrating to Nicodemus. And perhaps to some of us it could be confusing who are still exploring Christianity, still wanting to kind of get our hands around it. And and it makes sense why it can be frustrating. It does. It's actually very intelligible, intelligible to be asking these questions. So let's... Let's move on to the second point, so I think this is important. Point number two. The gospel is a reality, uncontrollable bias. Now, Nicodemus was confused. He was frustrated. He, he asked Jesus in verse four, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born again? Then again in verse nine, how can these things be? He was confused because Jesus' answer in how we're saved is not, in, 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 is not tangible. In other words, there is no empirical evidence, there is no empirical data or empirical proof to the words Jesus is saying. To have empirical proof of something, to have empirical evidence of something, means that you have um, physical and immediate obvious data to prove your claim. For example, if I take this piece of paper and I drop it right now, it will always drop every single time. That is empirical evidence for the reality of gravity. If we turn off the projectors, you will no longer be able to see the screen. That is a tangible empirical evidence to light waves. You see? Jesus' claim ha- lacked empirical evidence. What is this rebirth you're talking about? It, it, it cannot be empirically grasped. The Spirit? What's... How could something like that happen? He, he was still thinking empirically. See, you can't enter into your mother's womb. You can't actually empirically, visibly, tangibly see this thing you're talking about. What empirical evidence can you give me, Jesus? And to add to the confusion, Jesus said, the spirit's like the wind, by the way. It's like, he's just, what? <laughs> he's just, at this point, he's just frustrated. It's like the wind. You can't really, you can't really fully grasp it. There's no formula to control it some of you may know that I was previously a Muslim. I grew up a Muslim um, and I first heard the gospel when I was pretty young. Uh, but I never thought much about it. And then life happened. I went to school in Canada. And some of my friends in Canada actually took me to church. I absolutely hated it. I was repulsed by it. It was cheesy. <laughs> um, it just, it just, I just didn't like it. There's just something that repelled me to it um, and then I went to the US went the school there again somebody shared the gospel to me there um, I was again repulsed by it had nothing didn't want anything to do with it and then all of a sudden I heard it one more time from my assistant tennis coach at the time in the University of Memphis and he um, shared the gospel to me same exact gospel nothing new no new information no new revelation in October 2006 and at that time it completely consumed me. It captured me. I fell in love with it. I, I don't know why. There's no, it's nothing new I learned. It's the same gospel. No one pressured me to receive it. But for some reason at this point, I fell in love with it. This happened a lot of times in my ministry and campus outreach as well In a campus ministry in the U.S. I would have this perfect, or what I thought was a perfect, gospel presentation to somebody, and I'm like, oh my gosh, how can he say no to that? And then I would just never hear back from him. He, like, he would just not, not care at all. And then there's other times where I'd try and share the gospel, and I, and I just feel like I'm stumbling all over the place, and I'm struggling. My words are, I'm just so nervous. And it was the worst presentation ever. And he, comes, he receives the gospel. Now, we can psychoanalyze my conversion. We can psychoanalyze the conversions that I just shared with you uh, all day we can speculate of why they embraced it and why some didn't. You might say the reason why I embraced it uh, is, or why I didn't embrace it in Canada but then I embraced it in the U.S. is because in Canada I was not yet removed fully from my Muslim roots, but then later in life I went to America, so I was further removed from my Muslim roots, and because of that, I was more ready to receive the gospel, and, and that's kind of the explanation why. Or you can say that Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, where I was at, is, a, um, is, a, is what's called the Bible Belt. It's kind of southern America. There's, there's a church in every corner. And you probably think, well, he's in the Bible Belt, so he probably felt peer pressured by his friends to receive the gospel. That, that's the explanation. That's why he received the gospel, because he was more pressured in America than he was in Canada. Whatever your theory is, my goal is not to defend my conversion story today, or anyone else's really. But I'm here to tell you Jesus' explanation. He said, The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now let's get back to the point. What I shared about my conversion, what Nicodemus heard from Jesus, might sound suspicious to some. It might even be frustrating to others. And that's okay. I'm I'm not upset at the fact that it is. Again, I think it's very intelligible to be thinking about these things and to be reasoning through (coughs) these things. But let's briefly talk about it because I think it's the, it's the thing that troubled Nicodemus and I think it's a, it's a thing that um, is a concern for a lot of people today. Nicodemus was frustrated. What are you talking about, Jesus? You can't physically go back into your mother's room when you're older. You can't empirically quantify this claim. There's no empirical observable data. So it, because there's no empirical data, it therefore must be untrue. But this is where I think we need to be a bit careful. If you think about it, There are actually many things in life that we cannot empirically prove, but yet we still claim are true. One example is human rights. Stick with me here. Human rights, it's a real thing, right? We would say that it's true. Of course. But how do you empirically prove human rights? All humans have rights. We know it's true, but, but how do you prove that? Well, some might say the empirical reason of why humans have rights is because when we give human beings rights, they will therefore in turn contribute to society, and they will will therefore contribute to the survival of our species. That's the empirical reasoning, that's the empirical data of why human beings have rights. So the pragmatic usefulness of humans as it benefits society and survival of society, that's the empirical, tangible, immediate, obvious reason of why humans should have rights. Well, then what about humans that cannot benefit society? Like, like children with Down syndrome or elderly folks with Alzheimer's disease. They don't necessarily contribute to society. They don't add to the prolonging of our survival as a species. They actually take away more than they give. They actually make our survival less likely. What do they have rights now of course everybody here I hope would say they do in fact they have the same exact rights as everybody else we'll prove it give me empirical proof for that we we can't we can't really give empirical proof that elderly Alzheimer's folks and kids with Down syndrome have human rights but we know it's true don't we we know it's real just the fact that we don't have empirical evidence for it doesn't automatically disqualify it as a truth, as a reality. Now, I'm not, saying, um, I'm not saying that every claim out there that lacks empirical evidence is therefore true. No, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there. I know that. All I'm saying is just because something can't be immediately and obviously proven empirically, it does not automatically mean it's not true. For example, that all humans have rights, among other things. This gospel, this salvation, this conversion that Jesus explained to Nicodemus, it's rather difficult to to empirically substantiate. It is. But I want to encourage us today to not so quickly dismiss it and disregard it just because it's empirically hard to understand. Continue thinking about it. Study the Bible, what it says about it. Reason through it. And as Jesus claims that if this reality does become true in your heart, if it does capture you, if it does compel you, it's because it's the work of the Spirit. And it's not limited to your cultural background. It's not limited to your level of education. Not even limited by your sin. It can compel even the most rebellious skeptics and sinners. Um, I'm sorry, that sounded weird. (laughs) It can compel anyone. uh, um, um, Anyone who is um, uh, given grace by the Father in that. Even... Nicodemus himself, which brings us to our last point. Third point, the gospel is a power that compels us. So Jesus here, quote unquote, defeated Nicodemus. He won this battle of wits, right? Jesus had the last word in verse 10 to 14. Jesus kind of sealed his victory here in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? What what things? What things don't Jesus understand? Well, here's a good time for us to summarize everything that Jesus has has told Nicodemus. These things is everything that we've just talked about in our sermon. That our salvation is the sole act of the triune God, promised by the Father throughout the Old Testament, as Jesus refers to Ezekiel 36, accomplished by the Son of the Cross, and applied into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit moves by grace alone. Not because we're more educated, not because of our cultural background, not because we're better, more moral, religious people. Like the wind, it goes where he pleases. By grace and mercy alone are we saved. He causes sinners to be born again, to be created anew through water and spirit, meaning water cleansed from our sin through the cross of Christ who took the punishment for us. And he remains in those who have received him, the spirit giving us a new heart and a new life. Two verses to talk about just to nail Jesus' claim as supported by the rest of scripture. Romans 8.10. But if Christ is where? In you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 1 John 3.24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God, where? In him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Jesus asked Nicodemus, if you don't understand these things, the things that I've talked about this whole time, how can you understand heavenly things, which is just further things about God's kingdom? And you claim to be a teacher? He's not saying every Christian needs to understand the intricacies of the gospel, but if you claim to be a teacher, he's saying, you you need to know things at least about the gospel. And the, the point here is Nicodemus was humbled. He didn't know what else to say. He was the one who verbally challenged Jesus, but yet now he's the one lost for words. And if you think about it, this is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to just beat Nicodemus down. This is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to gloat over his verbal victory over Nicodemus. He could have said something like, how dare you challenge me, Nicodemus? How dare you question and speak to God in that way, you, you puny human beings? He could have. He would have all the right to say that. And almost like it sounded like he was going to do that in verse 13, right? He, Jesus kind of sounded a bit prideful there. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus addressed himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a, is a title in Daniel 7 uh, given to uh, uh, the Messiah who is to come, whose kingdom is forever, who has everlasting authority. He's saying the Son of Man is here. Nicodemus probably thought, all right, here he goes. Go on, son of man. Gloat over your victory. You won. I lost. Say whatever you're going to say. This would be the perfect opportunity for Jesus to gloat. So Jesus says in verse 14 to 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What? How, How does that make sense with this conversation? You have the opportunity to gloat. You, you can beat me right now verbally. You can gloat, but instead you're quoting a random passage in the Old Testament. This is actually a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. Let's stick with me as we bring it home. Jesus, in his opportunity to gloat and bring the hammer down, rightly so, upon this rebellious challenger of God, instead quotes Numbers chapter 21 a story where Moses lifted up a bronze serpent um, because at the time the Israelites, note the Israelites verbally challenged God in Numbers 21. God was upset. God sent down his wrath on them. But then he said, Moses, lift up this bronze serpent and whoever, um, whoever looks upon this bronze serpent will be saved from my wrath. Jesus here is sharing the gospel. See, Nicodemus, um, understanding this passage, understands he here is like the Israelites. He verbally challenged God. He's saying, God, who are you? Jesus, who are you to be saying these things? And, and like the Israelites, Nicodemus is currently at a spot where after challenging God verbally was overpowered by Jesus and he's at a spot where God had the right to To bring down the wrath and the hammer upon him. Israelites, Nicodemus, us. That's what we do. Now, we may never verbally say it, but every time we sin, every time we decide to choose and do our own thing rather than what God has called us to do, every time we um, um, disobey him, that's a a challenge. We're all challengers of God. (laughs) And just like Nicodemus, just like Israel at the time, we all deserve his wrath. We're all in the same boat. And this is the point where Jesus would have been justified to bring down his wrath and shame upon Nicodemus, but instead he relented. And he said what? I'm choosing to instead be like the serpent that Moses lifted up. The Son of Man will be like that serpent. I'll be lifted up. I have the right... Shame you right now, but instead, I'll be lifted up like the serpent, and whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Referring to what? The cross. He will be lifted up. He'll be nailed to it, actually. Taking upon himself the full wrath of God that we have brought upon ourselves, that Nicodemus has brought upon himself, that the Israelites have brought upon themselves for challenging him. But whomever believes in me, whomever believes what I'm offering when I'm lifted up on the cross, we'll have eternal life. And here stands this sinner, Nicodemus, challenger of God, perhaps asking himself, whoever believes, even me? Even me, who, like the Israelites, verbally challenged God, I can partake in this salvation? See, Nicodemus began this conversation to embarrass Jesus. But Jesus entered into the conversation not to defend his honor, but to reveal to Nicodemus of the shame Jesus was about to take on himself so that Nicodemus can live. He didn't enter into this conversation to verbally beat and gloat Nicodemus. Jesus entered into the conversation so that he can reveal to Nicodemus the defeat that he was about to experience on the cross for him. (laughs) It's unbelievably loving. And you know what's interesting? Every time Nicodemus appears again in the Gospel of John, you know what he does? Now after experiencing and hearing this gospel, every time he's mentioned again, he's either defending Jesus or honoring Jesus. Let's read a few. John chapter 7, verse 50 to 51. This is when Jesus was harassed and questioned by the Pharisees. Who was it that defended him? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What happened to Nicodemus? John chapter 19, verse 39 to 40. After the crucifixion, Jesus' body was buried. You know who it was that honored Jesus' dead body with expensive spices? Nicodemus. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, which is really expensive, by the way, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in a cloth with spices, as it is at its burial custom of the Jews. You see this person who was once antagonistic to the gospel, who was once repelled by it, was changed. As if he was a creature anew. He defended Jesus. He embraced Jesus. He honored Jesus. He didn't all of a sudden get or find empirical proof. Then why? <laughs> why did he embrace it? Well, we all, again, might have our theories but Jesus' explanation remains. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus' answer, the reason why Nicodemus embraced him is because of love of the triune God, that God the Father planned it for him long ago, God the Son will accomplish it for him on the cross, and God the Spirit will make his heart anew. And if you're in Christ today, it is because of the love of the triune God. God the Father planned it for you long ago. God the Son accomplished it for you on the cross. And God the Spirit made your heart anew. It is not because of your education. It is not because of our cultural upbringing. It is not because you're more morally righteous or because you're more religious than anyone else. It's because of grace. Grace. Has the gospel become such a power to you? And if it hasn't, then I encourage you to to continue exploring it. It's very intelligible to do so. It's very, very good to do so. I just want to encourage you, don't so quickly dismiss it due to what seems to be a lack of immediate empirical evidence. Continue looking into it. Study it. Think about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Ask questions about it. Our church actually is going to organize a monthly discussion group uh, for those who are uh, uh, um, not uh, still exploring Christianity and want to know more about it. We'll, we'll tell you more about that. we will begin September 16th. If you're interested in joining, let me know. Um, we, we would love to learn from you as well. But keep, keep, on, keep on it. And on an ending note, one more time, if you have embraced the gospel, I hope Jesus' words to Nicodemus reminded you of his love. And it will further cultivate this embrace of the gospel as you continue to see just how much your God loves you. Because he's wanted you for a long time. A long time. And he's paid the ultimate price for you. And he did not leave his relationship with you up to chance, but he sent his spirit to apply the salvation into your hearts so that he can call you his forever. Friends, this is the gospel. Pray with me. What a hard truth, Father, and even maybe um, rather intangible, even perhaps frust- frustrating. Uh, Lord, these are all um, normal uh, outcomes of, of hearing this message. And uh, Father, I beg you that you would, by your mercy, by your grace, um, make this message applicable. Make this message true and real in the hearts of those hearing it uh, as, as we've studied uh, your words and your scripture. And Lord, again, uh, as, we've, as we've said in the beginning of, of the sermon and the worship service, as well as anything is presented, it's, it's not going to be effective unless you decide by your mercy to move, and we beg you again for that. And Lord, if this, if this is rather um, uh, uh, frustrating or, or, or uh, hard to grasp or, or just, um, for some people, I pray that you would um, uh, uh, continue to encourage us Christians, Lord, to um, uh, uh, be humble and, and, and continue to talk and also learn uh, from them as we, as we both dialogue about your truths. Uh, God, I, I again beg you, Spirit, I pray that you would uh, continue to minister to our hearts now as we worship you as a congregation again, as we sing of these words and lyrics that are uh, based on your gospel truth. Um, work in us and apply this truth, and this reality into our hearts even deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.